Well, praise the Lord. It's so wonderful to have this opportunity to be able to spend some time together again today. Well, if we pick up from where our teaching was last week, we're going to go and look again at uh, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, when the man and the woman here become like God, let's not think that they become as God. That would be a wrong way to understand this. They become like God because they're now making their own determinations, the man and the woman, to know good and evil. And obviously, God is the only person who can determine what is good and what is evil. The man, Adam, and the woman, they would now be making that determination out of their sin nature, out of a fallen nature. And therefore, of course, they place themselves as in the place of God in making these decisions concerning others. And the tree of life, you know, sometimes people think that this has to do with living forever. And it really doesn't. The tree of life has nothing to do with eternal life um, because Adam and the woman were made to be eternal beings from the beginning. They weren't made to eat from the tree to become eternal. They were made to eat from the tree in order to rule during the seventh day. But we'll spend some time on the tree of life in a later study, so we'll leave that for the moment. Well, we had seen last time that there are very significant things recorded in the foundational scriptures that are essential for us to understand if we are to properly divide the word of truth so that we may know what our purpose as a Christian is and how this impacts what will happen to us in the future. Have you ever wondered, has anybody ever said, or do you ever say to others, uh, what is your purpose? What is God's calling on your life? Well, it would probably be interesting for some of you to realise that there is only one calling. We have only one purpose. Um, we're not going there today, but keep that in your mind. To begin, we'll see that God provided tunics of skin to clothe Adam and Eve's nakedness. Nakedness, we'll remember, that came from the loss of their covering of glory. And Adam and the woman, of course, had tried to do this using fig leaves, but there was nothing that they could do to replace that which remains in the province of God. This was an action, a work of their own hands, out of their own ingenuity, had nothing at all to do with God. Now, for God to provide these tunics of skin, then animals had to be killed and their blood had to be shed. And what we see in this foundational type is that God and God alone is able to provide the covering for that which was lost, and that this covering is provided only by death and shed blood. That which God provides is also that which God accepts. And through death and shed blood, we see what we have come to call eternal salvation that which we know to be the free gift of everlasting life. And the foundational type here in Genesis chapter 3 for that eternal salvation 
is then added to in Genesis chapter 4. This gives us more insight into this whole thing. Genesis 4, 8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Well, in this account of Cain and Abel, we see one brother killing another brother while they're in the field together. And Cain here presents a picture, a type of the nation of Israel who killed their brother, the Christ, when they were in the land together. But what is still seen through this type, of course, is death and shed blood, the death and shed blood of a brother. So it begins with death and shed blood in Genesis chapter 3. We see it's going to be the death and shed blood of a brother in Genesis chapter 4. And we can take this on a step further into Genesis chapter 22, beginning verse 2. Then he said, Now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Well, there's so much that we can say about this event because it's just filled with um, so significant things concerning the Christ and his crucifixion. Um, but to be brief today, just so that we can follow the progression of the types here that we're looking at. What we're going to note is that here we see a father who is to sacrifice a son, a son whom he loves. And interestingly, did you know that that word love in Genesis 22 too is the first time that word is used and we see love in relation to a sacrifice. And we also know, of course, as we follow the account of Abraham and Isaac, that a ram is provided to make a substitutionary death in Isaac's place. But, you know, from God's perspective, Isaac did actually die. But again, there is still death and shed blood. Isaac died in a figurative sense here because he was figuratively raised from the dead, as the scriptures tell us. And then we can take this whole picture then a little bit further. But let's just know what we have. Death and shed blood is the foundation. That's what it's all about to begin with. We see the death and shed blood of a brother. We then see the death and shed blood of a son whom the father loved. And again, one step further into Exodus chapter 12. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And down to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So again, we see death and shed blood. The death and shed blood, a lamb for a household, 
a substitutionary death. And let's note what is the only thing that God looked for on that night of Passover. He looked for the blood. And all of this, of course, leads us to the Christ, who is the son whom his father loves, who is the brother to the Jewish people, who is the sacrificial substitutionary lamb of God. And eternal salvation is provided by Christ's sacrifice on the cross through his death and his shed blood, nothing else. It's death and shed blood, nothing else. So let's ask ourselves a question if we might. All the Jews in Egypt on the night of the first Passover, were they eternally saved or not? Well, if we followed what is taught for us here through the types, the answer's obvious. Of course they were. How could they not be? God had provided the substitute to die in the place of the firstborn. But from God's perspective, the firstborn had died that night and he accepted the death and shed blood of the lambs that he provided. All Israel was saved that night and it was saved Israel that began the journey to the land of promise. Now we're also going to have to consider, of course, that the Passover was to be a feast held every year. And it needed to be every year because every new generation had to put faith, had to believe in God's provision for their sin, the death and shed blood of the Passover lambs. And this, of course, continued throughout Israel's history. So if you think about that then, the generation that was alive at the Lord's first advent, were they eternally saved or not? Well, simple question to answer. Were they still keeping the Passover? Every year, were they still killing the Passover lambs and the blood of those lambs being shed? Yes, they were. They were still putting faith in that which God had provided for their sin, the death and shed blood of the Passover lambs. The Jews at the Lord's first advent, the same as the Jews of that first generation, were eternally saved because of God's provision for sin. If we take that beyond the cross of Calvary, though, then we're going to realise that no Jew after that could be saved unless they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, because all of those sacrifices are fulfilled in Christ. And it wouldn't matter how many lambs you killed and how often you killed them. You could never be saved apart from the Lord Jesus Christ after the cross. But before that, for every single human being who put faith in God's provision for sin, death and shed blood, eternal salvation was there. Abraham was eternally saved before he left Ur of the Chaldees. It's not mentioned in the scripture, nor does it need to be, but we know he put faith in God's provision for sin, death and shed blood. And how do we know that happened before he left Ur of the Chaldees? Because in the book of Hebrews, it tells us, by faith, Abraham. And you cannot act by faith apart from being eternally saved and having spiritual life. But you know, if we think about those Jews at the Lord's first advent and those ones are live at the, uh, those first generation to come out of Egypt, some people find it really difficult to think that they were eternally saved because of the way the majority of the Jewish people behaved in that first generation on their journey to the promised land. 
People will often ask, how could those who are eternally saved behave like that? But you know, the answer is so very, very simple. When God killed the animals for Adam and Eve, did they automatically lose their sin nature? Well, no, they didn't. When the substitute ram was killed in Isaac's place, did he immediately lose his sin nature? No, he didn't. Did the death of the Passover lambs take away the sin nature of the Jews in Egypt? No, it didn't. And then when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, did we lose our sin nature? No, we didn't. And if anyone has ever told you otherwise, from a scriptural standpoint, we can be very clear. They are a liar. First John 1 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we, as eternally saved people, are to fulfill God's purpose for us to rule, our sin nature has to be dealt with. So how does that happen? Well, next time, if the Lord is willing, we might begin to look at that. God bless you until then. Goodbye.